0: "...Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor?" says the Lord of hosts. "...And now entreat treat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you?" says the Lord of hosts. "...Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you," says the Lord of hosts, "...and I will not accept an offering from your hand." For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weirdness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands? Says the Lord. Curse be the chief who has a male in his flock and bows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord was his blemish. For I am a great king. Says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. Chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. Says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned Many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and base before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created this? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering. Or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by like covenant. did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife that divorces her, says so the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I couldn't help this morning to think about the particular love that God has. A pointed particular love <coughs> So I ask the question in my own heart Is What does God owe His creative world Does God owe you And me Does he owe us a benevolent love Does God owe benevolence to all Who must God love And, and Does God have to prove his promises Before I believe If God indeed loves me So what I just think God does this so well. well, the book of Malachi can be divided up in six sections of disputations or um, disagreements between God and his people, Israel. This morning I'm going to look at the first three of those disputes, And next week we'll finish with the final three. But before we dive into to the text, I want to give us a little overview and a little background of what's going on here. See? So here's what Israel's situation is. They're a hundred years or so after the decree to end Babylonian captivity, so they've been brought back home. The temple has been rebuilt. Well, God promised blessings with the rebuilding of the temple, and that included grafting in of all nations, prosperity, expansion, peace, and the return of the glorious presence of God. But what Israel is experiencing instead is deep economic hardship, prolonged drought, Crop failure, pestilence. And the land of Judah is almost insignificant. It's about 20 miles by 30 miles or so at this point. And although they had been returned from exile, well, the Persians here, they were were occupying, and they were generally tolerant of their worship practices, but the feel would have been that they were under a foreign oppression, a foreign occupation. And the temple here, the temple was inferior to physically and spiritually to the original. And there seemed to be no visible manifestation of God. I remember before that there was a pillar and all of that, right? Like the presence of God was, was, was there. But God's people were called to live by faith and not by sight. And in so doing, their faithful witnesses, God's chosen people, would bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. So that's kind of the overview of the, the situation that they him. So I want to look back again at this first dispute. And here comes the question, the question for us, the question for them. And the question really that they might be asking of God is, does God make a distinction between his chosen people and the arrogant and wicked? Does God, make, does God make a distinction between his chosen people and the arrogant and wicked? Because they're taking a look at their trouble? And God declares here this burden to them. Well, think, this word burden. Malachi's burden with the word of God for God's people. And think about this. When one must deliver a message such as Malachi is charged with, what does it take? It takes some courage. It takes some confidence in who God is. And Malachi here, he possesses the words of reconciliation for them. And he's compelled to fulfill that ministry of reconciliation. And in one sense, it's like a duty. And in another sense, it's a must that was born out of his own column by God. And he would say, I cannot not deliver this message, no matter how it will be received. I must deliver this message. Because in some sense, it's harsh to say, I have loved you. Well, how have you loved us? And then the response is, at least you're not these guys. I mean, you're having a hard time, but at least you're not these guys. Is that a comfort? Right? Is that a comfort? What really did become a comfort for me as I really thought this through that God's love is distinct, it's on purpose that God made a sovereign choice to love me and maybe not someone else. I don't know who those are, right? We don't get to know that. We just pray for them and and hope for God's intervention in their life. We don't get to know that. But just the fact that he does love me in a distinct way is good news. And so as we look here, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I love that this whole book starts out with that statement. I have loved you. In the past, it's almost as if it's a guarantee that he's saying, I will continue to love you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau and I have made waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I have loved you, but you say, How Consider the situation that we find ourselves in. How, God, have you loved us? Everywhere I look, there is opposition. Our land is small. Our enemies are many. The occupying government marginalizes us. The glory days of worship are behind us. We seem not to have any tangible presence of you, God, in our worship. Are we any... Different than what Israel's situation is, when you think about that, no. the world marginalizes us, and do we often say in that place, "Oh God, how have you loved us? Look at my situation." Well, God's elective love here is vindicated in His judgment. Because God says this, and think about this. This is what he would really say if I had to just say it in, in my own words of what I see him speaking here. God does not owe you a benevolent love. Look at these brothers. Jacob, I have elected to be my people, to be those through which the promised one would come. Esau has been appointed to wrath. But not you. But not you. You, I have loved. You have been spared for us. I have made a covenant with you. I have not made no such covenant with Esau. I brought you out of captivity. I rebuilt the temple. Esau has been cast to the wicked country. Although you are afflicted, you are loved because I choose to. Because I have given you grace instead of wrath. I imposed this burden upon Malachi to deliver my word to you, not Esau. And you respond by denying my love to be true. This whole thing as I think about the burden of the word of the Lord and the fact that there's even this book of the Bible called Malachi is proof that God is vindicated in his elective love for them. Because here we are reading that thousands of years later. And this love that he has for his people is still as true today as it was then. Right? God is vindicating. And here it is. It's a burden, he says. "I I am burdened in all I am to declare to you, I have loved you. The burden is tell you that I will love you. And yet, I have this against you. I have your response. Your response is, I look at my situation and I really don't feel loved. I really don't sense that I am loved by God. Any of you ever feel that? Any of you ever feel that sense that, yes, I know I am Christ and I know what he's done for me? I get that. But when I assess the situation, this doesn't feel a whole lot like love. It's really hard. It's really difficult. Why doesn't he make every path smooth? Why doesn't he make everything easy for me? I don't really feel love. I suppose you who are parents in this room have kids and you have to discipline them and their response is, oh, you don't love me. What do you love me? You're making it too hard at all. Well, you say, this is how I've loved you, right? And you lay that out? Well, as the church here, I think, we must remember this, that we are off the hook here. Because the promise of God for you and for me in Christ Jesus, our peace with God, victory, a spirit-filled, abundant life, God has promised us a sufficient grace to fulfill all our needs according to his riches and glory. And yet, we ask, how have you loved us? We ask, we say, God, I didn't ask for my wife's illness. I didn't ask for cancer. You said you loved me and you gave me love and yeah, you gave me this. How have you loved us? How have you loved me? I didn't ask that my co workers think I'm not worthy of respect because I could declare my faith in Christ. And then I think about what makes amazing grace so amazing is that it was given to you at all. Amen. That I have it all. When you think about the fact that I say I can stand here and say that I am loved by God, think about your neighbor. What about your neighbor? I think about my family. I and mean, then why not my brother? Why not my sister? Maybe you have kids and you say, why not your daughter? Or this one hits home with me, why not my mom? Why not? And I can't help but think as we sit here in this room, we can think, why not some of those who gather among us every Sunday morning? Why not them? Why me? Why not them? And then the overwhelming thought is, but I love, amen, praise God, right? That God's elective love vindicates him, that he loves me at all. Because, as Romans says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Now, there's, not a, there's not one of us who seeks after God. There's not a soul in the room that's sitting here today that, that can honestly say, when you reflect on the core of who you are and where you're at, that you seek after God, always, with right with, motives, with right intentions. Right there's none of us who seeks after God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And yet, the same one who can sit here in Austin and Austin say that says, I am loved by God. That was his elective choice. He loves you. Amazing. That makes grace amazing. Because I know when I reflect in my own heart and I reflect back on um, have I loved God with all I am? Have Do I seek after him always? Do I seek after him with purity in my heart? And the answer is undoubtedly no. It's no. It's often no. It's more often no than I would like to admit to you. But if I look at myself, it's often no. And then I understand God loves me. Jesus is he loved me. He loves me so much that he gave me all of himself. Because he knew that I had the no righteousness in myself to come to him, that I wouldn't seek after him. So, as John says, He's searching for those who would worship him in spirit and truth. See, it is God who is searching. It is God who is seeking after you to love him. It's God who does the seeking. It's not us.
1: Because no one's righteous. No one seeks after God. No, not one.
0: Amazing that he loves us at all. Amazing that he loves Israel. is no better off than Esau. They don't seek after God. And he's going to explain that to them here in just a moment. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 6. A son who honors his father and is servant his master. If... Then, I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests, you despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food at my altar, but you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of Hosts? I love that. It's almost sarcastic, right? So like show that to even just the governor who's much lower than I. Will he find favor with that little measly thing that you bring? No. How much more? The God of the universe, right? Will he show you favor? Well, he says, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, See, How could you know. Before all the God would go. That the offering you give. Would be lame to the governor. You well, well, bring us to God and say. Well show us favor with that. Right. How could you do that. Will he show you favor. Uh, to any of you. Says the Lord of hosts. And then. Oh that there were one among you. Who would shut the doors. So that you might not kindle fire. On my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. Says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. We're all. As we look at this, we think, he would say this, he says, Israel, you declare, great is the Lord, because I told you that I loved you. And I said, look, you're not Esau, right? And and, and one day you're going to say, okay, great is the Lord, great is the Lord. He says this, you should respond to my distinctive, elective love for you in honor to me as a son and in fear as a servant. Instead, you bring me half-hearted worship and dishonor my name. And then you ask, how have we you dishonored your name? We bring sacrifices. He says, you bring second best. And you say, what is choice for yourself? I would rather have shut the door and the temple empty than for you to bring such dishonorable gifts into my house. You treat human authority with more honor than this. You reveal God we gain and offer it. You show disdain for worship by doing it begrudgingly. God declares that he will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. His name will be great in all the world. Worship will be pure with or without you. I am making a covenant. I am a covenant making God. I am a covenant keeping God. I deserve your honor. Right? That's his declaration. And there's a distinctive love. And then we owe it to God to have a distinctive response, right? And he's saying, this is not the distinctive response. And I ask this again, too, and I say to the church and to me, is are we off the hook? Do we come into the house of worship and offer what we can spare? Or do we offer the first fruits of our labor? Do we cheat in our workplaces or on our taxes to get ahead? And then bring our offerings to the offering bucket. As if that is something worthy to bring. That that is something that makes our is pleasing to our God. Let's look at chapter 2. We need verse 1 right here. And now all priests, this command is for you if you will not listen. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will beg your offspring and spread dung on your faces, and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. You shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. One thing to notice in this text is that God repeats through Malachi, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, there's a reason for that. As they are there in this land feeling the sense that there's enemies all around them, right? In this this prophetic book, more than most, Lord of hosts is repeated again and again and again and that's on purpose to say God is a God of armies. That God has the armies of the world to fight for you. He, he again, is is communicating to them that he's everything they need, that he's all in for them, right? So he reminds them by declaring himself, I'm the Lord of hosts. I have the hosts of armies at my side, uh, threaten not about all the enemies around you. Well, here is this uh, proclamation against the priests. He says, your priests have corrupted the covenant, and it is to your shame. I despise them. I will despise them, and I'll shame them even further. Don't you remember that the covenant I made with Levi was life and peace? But your priests have corrupted the covenant through teaching what is false. Your priests have led those that they were called to guide. They're guiding them headlong into sin. You show partiality in your teaching by neglecting the entire counsel of God. Matthew Henry says this best. He says, nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. Nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. That is true of the priests. And that's true of us, too. As we are priests, right? We are priests of God true to us that it profanes the name of God, that honor his conduct, because it is our business to do honor to it. In American culture today, we have pastors and teachers who pick and choose what truths to share with God's people. In the pulpit in a lot of churches today, there's nothing more than it's an entertainment vehicle by which our favored son delivers to us that which only honors himself. It honors himself, it honors his favorite cause, it panders to his audience's preferred style, and then their pet sins. That's really what goes on a lot in a lot of churches. If I want to pander, I have these pet things that I'm all about. And I know that you have these pet sins that you are all about, and I don't want to disrupt that. I want you to like me. And I want you to find me this swell fellow, right? Well, it is to their shame, God says. It's to their shame but here's the thing it's also to ours it's also to ours if we sit and listen to it It, it's to our shame if we we sit underneath it it's to our shame if we don't call it out and say no 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 it is to our shame god declares the faithfulness of israel as evidenced by their faithfulness to each other faithlessness to each other in marriage this is the next section god is going to declare the faithfulness, faithlessness—I'm choking on that word for some reason—the faithlessness of his people as they are faithless to one another. Look chapter two, verse ten. Have we all not one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel covers his garment of violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So here God is declaring the faithlessness of Israel as evidenced by their faithful, faithlessness to each other in marriage. And he declares you profane the sanctuary of God by bringing in the false gods, bringing in partial truths, bringing in false gods, by marrying outside of the covenant community. He further declares, You fail to keep even your earthly covenants. How do you not see that you are faithless to me? I will not accept your sacrifices. Do you not know that I am making a godly nation through you by which the whole world will be blessed? This is his declaration to them, is that in purity, right? In purity, the world will be blessed. And I made you a community. Right? I have taken that. And he's done that for us as a church, right? Hasn't he? He's taken us as a community of believers and he's drawn us together. And he's drawn us together in this covenant, this greater covenant than this. And yet, do we mix ourselves with other things that are not consistent with the purity of the covenant community that we're in? We are by nature like Israel. We are covenant breakers. We easily disregard our personal relationships for convenience. We declare our allegiance to Christ and worship and live as though the sacrificial love of God displayed by Christ's voluntary substitutionary death on the cross means less to us than our perceived need for comfort. This message is for all of us. This message demands a response. Repent and believe becomes our response. Repent and believe. And as I look at this, I understand this greater than anything else. God himself is our great need. The covenant making God is a covenant keeping God. And what truth that we find in the scripture is this. Is that God himself Provided a more perfect covenant. God gave us the perfect prophet. The perfect sacrifice. The perfect priest. And he made him king. And we exalt him as Lord Jesus Christ. And God had a burden for you. And it's just as Malachi, but... The burden of the word of the Lord. The burden of God's great love delivered by his messenger. It's so great that for you and me, he delivered the message in person. He delivered the message in the person of Jesus Christ. If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews, And I'm not going to give you sort of a specific address, but I'm going to jump through some stuff pretty fast to give us some points here that that the writer of Hebrews makes in declaring this greater covenant, in in declaring the greater um, burden of God. And let's look at first, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The great burden of the Lord He spoke to Israel by the prophet Malachi. He spoke to us in these days by his Son. He spoke to us, his burden in person. Chapter 2, let's look at it, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our great high priest, he came for us and was sinless, but yet he knows us. That he knows us enough, and he suffered enough, the same sort of things that we suffer, and yet when he was tempted, he said not. Nah. He then is able to help us who are being tempted. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Remember, see, Malachi says here that the the, um, indictment against Israel was, I have loved you, and you didn't. Honor me as a son. And here, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. And indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And, be, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. We read ahead in chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So I ask. This morning, will you, will I, will we respond to the Word made flesh, who for our sake kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied the wrath of God? Receive the Word of the Lord this morning, confess Jesus Christ as Lord with your mouth, and believe. In your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you shall be saved. If that is you this morning. You are loved by God. And you can say, oh how he loves us. As we sang this morning. You have been elected, chosen to receive his Grace. Good news. Good news. If that's you. We must do business with that this morning. You have to have ears to hear. This is not something I can make you respond to. That was the burden of my prayer this morning as we were singing. I, I know that I want a response. I would love to see you know, a room full of people respond to that truth. And I can't do it. It's not my job. It's not my duty to do it. But I'm here praying right now as we're standing and I'm talking. I'm even praying in my mind and my heart that the Holy Spirit has been in here doing His work in you. And He's convincing you in your heart of sin, of His righteousness, right? He's convincing you of that. If that's you, he's giving you ears to hear and a heart to respond. And, and that, my friends, is good news because he's telling you this. I have loved you always from eternity past. And I will always love you eternity in the future. And I prove it. I prove it. Because I sent you my word in the flesh. I gave you A great prophet, greater than this prophet Malachi, a greater high priest. That he himself was also the priest and the sacrifice, and he was perfect, without blemish. He was perfect for you. And that even death, even death could not take him away from you, but it was his death who brought you to the relationship with God. That is good news. That is real love. That is something that you and I ought to celebrate. That you and I ought not to fret about the fact, are we loved? Yes, we are. We ought to fret that there's those out there that don't know that they are loved by God. That they haven't heard and received the word of God. We ought to be so stirred in that, that that we wouldn't bypass the opportunity to tell those that we declared this morning maybe it's not my neighbor but have I told my neighbor about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them maybe my brother, have I told him if they rejected, it, did I tell them again maybe my mom, did I tell her did she reject me do I tell her every week do I tell her every month do I tell her every time I meet with her I have you because the love is so great that she needs to hear it. She needs to know it. And I don't know who God is saving. I don't know who it is that God's elect people are. But I need to assume that it's everyone. So everyone needs to hear it, right? Amen. We all need to hear it. We all need to proclaim it. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Jesus. So all I can say is I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your love for me. I thank you for your love for those in this room. I pray this morning that if there's one or many who might respond to the truth of your love this morning that your love is distinct that you've chosen them specifically to impart your love to them that you laid your life down on the cross for them for that one person you laid it down That you sought after them. That they didn't seek after you, but you were looking for them to love them. I pray, Lord, that you have convinced that one this morning to repent of their past and to turn to you, to accept your grace and forgiveness. I pray for those of us who have maybe felt like the love of God has been missing. The presence of God has been missing in our worship time. I pray this morning that we are convinced once again that we are loved. I pray that we are encouraged to bring the best that God has given us to bring the best to his house, to the best to praise his name. That we have all of ourselves and not what's left over. That we haven't become cold, poor God. I pray that you would warm our hearts again once, once again for your love for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.